0: 23 1114 from Southern Iowa, United States versus Devontae Veasley.
1: Mr. Smith, we see that you're appointed under the Criminal Justice Act, and the court would like to uh, give you its appreciation for your willingness to accept the appointment. Thank you, Your Honor. You may
2: proceed. Yes, in 922 G3. Is an unconstitutional prohibition against um, what, in many circumstances, would be would be considered law-abiding citizens uh, to um, own and possess firearms for their armed self-defense, um, and it does so in a way that, as um, well, the, I'm sorry, the analysis has completely changed in recent years because of the Supreme Court's case in Broome now the this court in C, uh, S E A Y, had previously found that 922 g3 was um constitutional after heller this court did it under what the, the standards were in heller which is is there a long-standing prohibition of that uh that enables that statute to, um to uh, prohibit uh, firearm statutes brune changed that analysis Brune said that there needed to be a two-step analysis. First, does that does the um, statute cover conduct that is within the plain text of the Second Amendment? And then, secondly, not whether there's a longstanding prohibition, but whether there's a historical analog to the type of prohibition that they are making. So, a couple of things have changed dramatically since this court first decided C. Um, first, of course, is Brune, and um, which changed the analysis that the court made. And second, um, the court relied on a lot of its sister circuits in C, which had all upheld 922 G3. That is changing um, dramatically and drastically. The Fifth Circuit has already held that 922 G3 is unconstitutional. That case has been uh, filed for um, a petition for it to search the Supreme Court. I imagine that it will be granted. And then uh, Rahimi, a case that involved um, prohibitions related to domestic violence orders, um, has been granted search with the Supreme Court of the United States, and an oral arguments going to be held on that on November seventh. So, counsel, so to- do, do you think uh,
3: Judge Colvius here? Do you think there's anything left to the long-standing prohibition
2: line of cases after Bruin? I don't think so. I think that the that the court has completely asked. Um, uh, Courts to change their analysis about how we look at the Second Amendment cases, and to see if there's a historical analog, and the historical analog will serve better um, to bring forth what the what the founders meant by the Second Amendment than long-standing prohibitions. Can I have you back up? Um,
3: so. Uh, Standard or review here. We asked you a series of both parties, a series of questions. Um, Are we in plain air land or are we in de novo review land? And whatever answer you give, tell me why.
2: Yes, absolutely. So a denial of a motion to withdraw a guilty plea would be for abusive discretion in most circumstances. But because this is a denial of a motion to dismiss an indictment, I believe that your review is de novo. But was, isn't the problem that, and I just want to, I want to clarify this.
3: Isn't the problem then, yes, it's jurisdictional, but it wasn't raised when the dismissal of the indictment needed to happen, which is very early on in the case, before before a guilty plea, before a trial, and here that did not happen. So does that put us in plain air
2: land? No, I don't think so, because it still, it still was raised to the district court. And you see, even in C, right, even in cases like that, when there's a jurisdictional attack on the statute, um, a facial challenge to the statute, that is still de novo after you... Um, uh, if it's even if it's made after the guilty
3: plea. The difference in C, though, is it actually happened, I think, before the guilty plea. I think C, that the motion to dismiss the indictment might have been un, uh, untimely uh, in the sense that it came a little later, but I think it at least came before the motion to withdraw the guilty plea. It came earlier in the litigation, and then it was brought up again later. That was my understanding of the procedural history.
2: So does C help you? I think that C does help me because I think that you have to uh, do the motion to do this indictment um as a jurisdictional issue as a, as a legal question it's always a legal question it's always been brought up you know at the district court level so always give the district court the opportunity to correct any error um plain error review in this instance wouldn't um serve any purpose of parties bringing up um issues at the at the soon uh, as soon as they could potentially bring them
3: okay so let's move on to sort of the next threshold question Facial versus as applied challenge. One thing that's clear based on C and other cases is you're in facial challenge land because you your as applied challenge has essentially been waived with the guilty plea. So if that's true, one of the things you mentioned, the Fifth Circuit, I think, in Daniels, that was an as applied challenge. And my question for you is, is Salerno, um, the, you have to basically win a facial challenge, you have to show no constitutional applications whatsoever. Does Salerno apply here?
2: Um, I do think so. I think that that gets me into, like, de novo um, review territory, you know, dismissing the indictment for lack of jurisdiction because it's constitutional. So I think that because I get that, uh, that standard review, I think it has to be a, a facial challenge. No circumstances can the, the, uh, the statute be constitutional. I think that's okay. So
3: now, now I have a little bit of an issue because, um, you know, um, in terms of the historical analogs, people who were in a... I'm using this because this is what the sources use, lunatics, people who are lunatics, were not allowed to own a gun if they were dangerous to others. Um, Arguably, maybe not your client, but arguably somebody on PCP or bath salts or any of these drugs that have great hallucinogenic effects could be dangerous to others. And presumably if they're mentally ill or temporarily mentally ill and dangerous to others, they could be dispossessed of firearms uh, at the time of the founding so it doesn't that just completely resolve this case
2: i don't think so your honor because um uh how they the this, this is not a question of how of why we have these prohibitions there's also a question of how we have these prohibitions so uh, currently how we uh um uh, do our, our um, you know possession of firearms if you have um, you know a mental illness is you have to be adjudicated to have that mental illness. So there has to be another step that happens between you having that mental illness. And then you actually go into the next step. So we have that protection, even in in state court cases, because the Supreme Court said, well, if you want to adjudicate someone is mentally ill or you're going to commit them to an institution, there needs to be some showing of dangerousness and there needs to be clear and convincing evidence that they have this. This is why, you know, we we don't see prosecutions of people with depression or anxiety. of getting prosecuted for this, so even if we we're, we're talking about people that are in fact dangerous, there's that extra level of protection that we have for for uh, mentally ill people, which is that they uh, have actually been through that. There's also um, a way to restore rights if you have been um, adjudicated mentally ill um, in in most states. So you can actually be found to be mentally ill, um, then got. Um, committed to an institution be be better and then and then go back to the courts and say look, i 'm better now i 'm not dangerous. can I have my firearms rights restored, and that they will give them to you we don 't have any of those protections when you 're talking about the well, someone that 's on PCP or basalts we also also anyone could potentially be dangerous and without a statute requiring some showing of them actually being on something that's dangerous and and doing so i think this is still way too overbroad to say that 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 um that there's no circumstances that they could be found um to be um mr smith
1: i'd like to go back to heller and bruin Mm -hmm. Uh, and i have two questions one is What's the difference between Heller's long standing prohibition language and Bruin's historical analog language, and then two did did Bruin purport to overturn or change
2: Heller's standard so I think that Bruin purported to clarify Heller's standard, and in, in Bruin's opinion, they say that we're still or we' you know we are still um we, you know consistent with heller and dc and all those other cases but i think that how how people have interpreted it is different so long-standing prohibition can just be a law that we've had on the books for a very long time and say well that's a long-standing prohibition uh, when we're talking to historical analogs we have to actually look at what we had back when the second amendment was first um formulated and wonder Okay, well, did they have these type of prohibitions at that time, not just whether we 've had the book them on the books for a long time?
1: I know that that
2: Bruin eliminated the means
1: end analysis that some circuits, not the a circuit but some circuits were doing,
2: but I thought it otherwise purported to essentially just be applying Heller yeah no, no I, I would agree that that 's how it's it's doing it i'm saying I think that the how courts have interpreted. Historical. Well, if, if that's
1: true, then why isn't Say's finding that 922 G3 is the sort of long-standing pro- prohibition on the possession of firearms
2: that Heller declared presumptively lawful? Why isn't that binding on this panel? I don't think that it's binding on this panel because it, it it's not going into action what the historical analog is. It's looking at what whether there, there's been a long-standing prohibition, right? So it's looking at, well, have we had this law in the books for a long time? C didn't look at whether, at the time the Second Amendment was formulated, whether there were historical analogs to look back to and say, okay, this matches what we're talking about. Um, with that, I think I'm going to reserve the rest of my, my time for um, uh, rebuttal, um, and I hand it over to um, Mr. Cole.
3: Well, let me let me just ask oh, yeah. one follow-up question which is um you know i had a question about the long-standing prohibition language as well um except for i didn't think that i thought that applied to felon status and here there's no conviction necessarily of of possession of drugs you could just be nailed for being a felon of possession and have no conviction for drugs whatsoever so is that what i mean is that one way to distinguish this from from
2: what was said in heller I think that that would be, because when they we talk about longstanding prohibitions, they talk, they, they make references to felons and the mentally ill. So it is referencing two um, pretty specific categories uh, um, that they knew at the time of Heller did had historical analogs.
3: I mean, it does uh, use the broader language, law-abiding, and I'll get into this with opposing counsel, but that's my, that's, thank you for your
2: answer um and with that i'll uh yeah i think i'll turn over to mr call and take any further questions on the rebuttal
1: very well thank you mr smith mr call
0: may it please the court counsel Devontae Beasley, a drug user admitted to the possession of a nine millimeter pistol which he shot at a miner in a west Des Moines parking lot the miner had been lured to the parking lot at beasley's direction to sell illegal drugs beasley now challenges those crime he pleaded guilty to raising the second amendment claim but as i hope to demonstrate this afternoon drugs and guns are a dangerous combination and the second amendment has never been understood to prohibit congress from disarming individuals who are not law-abiding responsible citizens
3: counsel Uh, is that always true you say it's dangerous and i and i agree that there you, you heard me ask opposing counsel there are instances in which it is dangerous but let's just take the old lady who's on medical marijuana Right. She's 80 years old. She's on medical marijuana because she has a hip condition and a bunch of uh, rowdy youths have been uh, have been bothering her in her neighborhood. So she's decided to get a gun to protect herself in the home. The cops show up, they see the gun and they arrest her for being a drug user in possession of of a firearm. Is that lady really what's contemplated here? And I understand there's prosecutorial discretion, but there have got to be instances where people are not dangerous and that a second amendment um, challenge would survive, as applied?
0: Well, I think i have two answers to that question. The first answer is we're here on a facial challenge, not an as applied challenge. And I think that makes all the difference in the world for the outcome of this uh, particular case. Uh, the second uh, co- comment is that uh, Congress does have the ability to identify groups uh that are perceived as uh as dangerous and has done so in terms of uh drug users they can Um, but they
3: have to have a historical analog what's the historical analog here i couldn't find uh, one which is why which is why i'm asking
0: yeah and 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 to jump forward uh to to the fourth question uh the panel asked me to address, there are really uh, three historical analogs uh, that we think apply in answering that question. I want to point out that that presupposes that unlawful drug users are encompassed within the text of the second amendment and this government's position that they are not because they are not law abiding responsible uh, citizens. But proceeding now directly to the court's question, there are the intoxication laws Laws disarming members of the groups deemed as dangerous and disabilities from possession of firearms by the mentally ill, uh, starting first with the intoxication laws. Uh, the the cases of discuss uh, some examples out of uh, colonial Virginia and New York. Uh, the mis- the militia laws uh, disarm intoxicated militia members, uh, and, and and these are. Talked about in some depth in, in the Daniels case, and uh, Daniels was, an, as the court pointed out earlier, was an as-applied challenge. Uh, uh, but in the course of the discussion, uh, Daniels suggested that somebody that the intoxication analogy was a good one at least for somebody who was actively under the influence of a controlled substance. Uh, And, as I read, uh, Daniel's uh, a facial challenge uh, would fail. Uh, The second category are those who are deemed as dangerous. The state can take away the right to bear arms from the categories of people it deems dangerous. Uh, That's uh, now Justice Barrett uh, writing as an Eighth Circuit judge in the Cantor case. Drugs and firearms are, as I indicated, the dangerous combination. Uh, they can, a drug user can mishandle firearms, he can use firearms to commit crimes, uh, violence may occur as part of the drug culture, the drug business, and of course, because of the unlawful nature of drug use and drug possession, there's always the risk of confrontation with uh, law enforcement. Uh, so that's uh, that's my quick answer to... Oh, and then uh, the third category is uh, the mentally ill who Heller r- recognized uh, could be disarmed. Uh, and uh, I'd point the court to, and I know it's a pre-Bruin case, but in Yancey, uh, the Seventh Circuit uh, made the observation that habitual drug users like the mentally ill, are more likely to have difficulty exercising self-control. Uh, this is, and this comes from the common law idea where justices of the peace could lock up what they referred to uh, as lunatics. And again, while this may not be a dead ringer for modern day restrictions, it's certainly a strong enough correlate to pass past constitutional muster under Bruin. Uh, one point I would make in that regard, uh is that the analysis under Bruin becomes a little bit more nuanced when we're talking about unprecedented social concerns and unlawful drug use wasn't something that was known in the colonial era so we have to uh be looking for historical twins historical analogs not a a perfect match uh, I'd like to address uh, the other questions so I Council, so let me just that.
3: real quickly
0: um, on that point
3: um, there is some evidence that that certain I don't remember exactly what it was but we've done a little research on this and that opiates were actually present in some form at the time of the founding and if at the time of the founding um, people who were on opiates were not dispossessed of firearms would that would that undermine your argument here? I
0: think I think that would be a legitimate point to weigh, but I think it, it would have to exist uh, alongside the prohibitions on the mentally ill. It would have to exist alongside the prohibitions uh, on the intoxicated. Uh, and on balance, uh, I don't think that would be enough uh to uh strip the persuasive authority uh away uh i would like to answer the other question so i uh to, don't don't miss a point uh the government's view is that say is still good law and binding on the panel a number of district judges in this circuit have uh, so ruled uh the long prohibition uh does seem to the government to be a reference to the historical analog uh, I recognize that the discussion in C, it was fairly uh, brief, but it's also consistent with other cases like uh, Bena, which was a 922 G8 case uh, where the court uh, concluded there's a common law tradition uh, permitting restrictions uh, on firearms uh, by non-law-abiding citizens or people who are not law-abiding and responsible. Uh, a more recent case called Adams uh, did something similar in addressing an as-applied challenge under 922 G1 and it was sort of interesting in Adams uh, there was a separate concurring opinion that suggested that the means ends analysis would be the way to go and that's not what the court adopted so I think uh, and to answer to Judge Grunder's question uh, Bruin purports to be a an application of Heller, and that's what this circuit was doing as well, and uh, while some other circuits may have strayed in the eyes of the Supreme Court, I don't think the Eighth Circuit did, and that those cases are all good law and this say is uh, binding on the panel uh, now, so let so me
3: th- let, let me let me argue with you a little bit about Adams. Um, there is a scenario in which what Adams may have said could be consistent with the Second Amendment. The problem is, and you saw this in the in the dispute in Jackson, is that Adams put the burden of proof on the wrong party. Even even in the later even in the later um, dissent for the denial and the occurrence, um, I don't think that anyone objected to the fact that Adams put it on the wrong party. So, is Adams really the best thing to rely on? Would it place the burden on the challenger rather than the government?
0: It, it still was looking at the historical analysis uh, and, and not going through this two step uh, process. And to the extent that, that, I mean, I think that's a fair point, but I also think that got cleaned up by Jackson uh, uh, for purposes of the uh, G1 cases uh just very quickly on the standards of review uh uh, say i think really uh controls say says that at least a facial challenge and i know we're not enough as applied challenge but a facial challenge survives the guilty plea and if it survives the guilty plea uh it seems to me uh that he's allowed to raise this claim that has reviewed uh, de novo. I think you know we all uh, acknowledge that uh, Bruin was decided after the plea was entered uh, in this uh, in this case. Uh, so the government is not suggesting that there's some sort of procedural bar or impediment uh, to this uh, Bruin claim being uh raised
3: uh, isn't one I mean, problem with say though council that um and i know i'm nitpicking at some of these cases but this is what we have to do is say it doesn't contain a whole lot of analysis it basically says there's a circuit consensus it goes and, and as opposing counsel pointed out some of that circuit consensus is now gone uh at least the fifth circuit case right. is now in a, in a different place and so i'm wondering that's why we asked the question about Citlidine which is, is that one we can really rely on here? Is it consistent with Bruin? And I'm not sure the answer is yes.
0: Well, I mean, and Sybildean's a little bit different because that looked at the first step and said they're not among the, the legal aliens, are not among the people uh, for Second Amendment purposes. Uh, drug users are gonna be somewhat, uh, somewhat different. Uh, but even if the court goes through the Bruin analysis afresh, based on the analogs I mentioned earlier, uh, we think that the uh, conviction should still stand. Uh, Again, this is a facial challenge in terms of the Washington State Grange Salerno question. Uh, Mr. Smith seems to concede uh, that that burden of showing no set of circumstances rests with him. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, even cases like Daniel's, if I take Daniel's at its word, uh, would appear to uh, support uh, a conclusion that an adds a plot uh, that a facial challenge uh, must fail. Uh, I, 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 I uh, was my was in the clock. Uh, Unless there are additional questions. Oh, I did want to respond to Mr. Smith's uh, due process argument or suggestion uh, that uh, some of these prohibitions are preceded by an adjudication of uh, dangerousness. Uh, I think analogous to that is the uh, situation where Uh, An unlawful user, there there must be under this circuit's law a temporal nexus between the regular drug use and the possession of a firearm. and That must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury or admitted at a uh, plea hearing. Ultimately, uh, the government thinks it is acceptable to prevent crime by disarming persons who pose a danger to the community, and there seems to be little dispute that Congress viewed drug users as an inherently dangerous class of individuals. Uh, I end where I began. drugs Drugs and guns are a dangerous combination. Congress's decision to disarm drug users categorically does not run afoul of the Second Amendment, and for that reason, we believe that the facial challenge section 922 gene 3 should be rejected if there are no further questions i'd yield back whatever i have left in the balance of my time very well hearing no further questions
1: mr call thank you mr smith uh, you have about three and a half minutes of rebuttal
2: i uh, you, your honor um i wanted to address uh the this, the first step of the analysis where we're looking at uh the people whether the the plain text of the amendment uh, covers the conduct described in the statute, right? So the government's reading this law-abiding um, requirement into that phrase, the people. Uh, the Second Amendment contains no such phrase of law-abiding within it, and in fact, there are many, there are several other amendments to the Constitution that use the phrase the people. That we, if we were to add in the phrase law-abiding. It would completely change the um, the meaning of those amendments to the Constitution. Um, it may not be in the Constitution, but it is in
1: Heller and Bruin uh,
2: repeatedly. Yeah, they do talk about law-abiding in in, uh, in Heller. I think that it's a mistake to read too much into that, um, because the, the phrase law-abiding has no limiting principle, and they talk about this uh, law the Fifth Circuit does in in, in Daniel. So this law-abiding mean that I followed a law every day of their life? I mean, I, I have speeded before, I will admit to, to this court, um, um, and i and gotten a ticket before. Do I n- now have no Second Amendment uh, rights? Am I not included within that part of the, of the people? Um, uh, and if so, do I have a right to, to peacefully assemble because I've speeded before? Or do I have the rights to remain secure in my house because I've speeded before? Or I have not recycled before? Or I've littered before? Um, that, that phrase... Is one that we we want to talk about when we talk about the Second Amendment because we do want people to not assault other people with their their firearms. We want them to be used in, in self defense, but to say that the right only belongs to somebody that has only has uh, never committed a crime whatsoever is, I think, a mistake uh, that would completely make the um, amendment meaningless. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, Judge Strauss, I believe you're speaking. Yeah. What about the gun
3: technical problems? What about the gun possessor who um, who you know you, you bring a you bring a, a, a charges against the gun possessor and you you have a gun and drug charges, and the defendant is convicted of both of them. Uh, is, isn't that different? Doesn't that make it more like Jackson, where you you sort of have a felony
2: accompanying it as well? I think that, that um, like I said before, the how we are stripping these people of their firearm rights is, is important. Uh, when you have a domestic violence protective order, when you have a mental illness adjudication that happens before, they are on notice that they no longer can possess firearm rights unless they are restored. I think you need to have a similar adjudication of possession um, of a controlled substance or trafficking of a controlled substance before you're going to start um, prosecuting these people in order for it to fit within um, the second amendment when we're talking about the people. I mean, the, the Bruin says, look at the plain text. The plain text says the people. It doesn't say the law-abiding people. That, was, that would be adding text to the second amendment that I did not believe was uh, intentioned. Um, that's all I wanted to cover, so unless there are any further questions, I will yield my time. Um, thank you all for Uh, I might to to speak about this and I've been very sick, so I'm sorry if that came through when I was speaking Very well, I'm not hearing any other questions. We appreciate uh, Both
1: counsel's appearance and argument and especially uh, your willingness to do this uh, kind of as an unscheduled or rescheduled uh, virtual argument, so Thank you for uh, for accommodating the court and uh, cases submitted and we will decided in due course.